Well, it's good to see you this morning, and I hope uh, your week has went well. Uh, and if it hasn't, uh, then I hope that the Lord speaks to you this morning and gives you words of encouragement. Before uh, I have you stand and we read uh, from Mark chapter 6, I want to read a passage uh, from the book of Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33, this what the word of God says. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face you shall not you shall not see the Lord said to Moses cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke Be ready by the morning and come up to the mountain to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds gaze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai. As the Lord commanded him and took took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children's to the third and fourth generation? And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Now if you'll stand with me as we read Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethesda, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. 
And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone in the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought he was a ghost and cried out, for they saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. You may be seated. Exodus 33 and 34 is one of the pivotal moments in Moses' ministry. He has this experience with God. He has this uh, reaffirmation of his ministry as, as we have this, this wonderful picture of, of God taking Moses and, and hiding him in the cleft of the rock as, as God passes by. And then he allows Moses to, to see his back because the glory of his face is too much for Moses, even Moses, to see. It's important because God displays his graciousness toward Moses in in passing him by. In in allowing him that moment to see God in a way that he had not before. A way that gave him encouragement. A way that would reveal to him that he and God's people had clearly been chosen by God to be in a special relationship with him. Only Moses would get to see such an astounding thing. But I want you to know this morning that I think there are a lot of similarities when we come to Mark chapter 6 with what happened there in Exodus 33 and 34. Jesus has been teaching and He has taught late into the evening, as was recorded for us in the verses before. He was with his disciples, and there was not enough food for everyone to eat. And so he he told his disciples, gather what food we have. It ended up being five loaves and two fish. We looked at this last week, and he, out of the five loaves and two fish, fed thousands and thousands of people. The Bible records for us there were 5,000 men there, so there could have been upward of of 10,000 people present listening to Jesus' teaching. And so oddly, Jesus does something here. He tells his disciples to to get into the boat and to go on ahead of him. He wants to kind of wrap up things with the crowd. He wants to kind of stop. He wants to kind of finish up with them and do so alone. 
There are a lot of different reasons this may have been. We, we read in John's Gospel that there was definitely this, this push from the crowd to go ahead and anoint Jesus as, as king. There's this, this push to go ahead and, and, and make him the Messiah or push him into the role as Messiah, at least as the people of his day understood it. They believed that, that he was going to come as this great warrior king and he was going to expel Rome from their country and he was going to lead them on a physical throne in Jerusalem. And I think we get a sense at times that the disciples definitely would not mind if that happened. Because if you can't be the king, it's good to be the friend of the king. And they see Jesus as their friend. And so he, he sends them away so that he can dismiss the crowd. So they get into the boat and they begin to journey across And they do so, the Bible says, very painfully, because the wind was against them. They were having to row against the wind. They were having to make their way against the wind in the middle of the night. As a matter of fact, by the time that we see Jesus walking on the water, uh, it would have been about 3 a.m. The fourth watch of the night was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., and so... It's very late in the evening. They're very tired from all that they've been doing. If you remember several verses ago, they were trying to rest, and that rest had so far eluded them. And so they're out in the ocean, a place that they had demonstrated before that they were afraid of at times. And all of a sudden, immediately in the words that Mark uses, they, they see what to them appears to be a ghost walking along the water. And we see that Mark tells us that he meant to pass them by. He was walking around them. And they see him, and they're scared, they're fearful. And he says to them, it's okay. It's me. If you were looking at this in the the Greek text, what you would see is the phrase, ego eimi, which we sang in our first song this morning. I am. In your Bible, it may say, it is I. It's been rendered for that, for readability, but... But in the original language, the, the, the term used here is I am. And he says, do not be afraid. So Jesus gets in the boat with them. The storm stops. They go on to the other shore. He begins his ministry again. He continues healing. He continues taking care of people but they don't get it. The Bible says there that they didn't understand it because they didn't understand what was up with these loaves and they have a hard heart and they've just seen something amazing happen again and again they do not understand it. What do we learn from this text? 
How do, we, how do we embrace this? How do we avoid the pitfalls of what the disciples do here? Because once again, they have this opportunity to understand Jesus better. They have this opportunity to know who he is and see who he is and, and have this deeper relationship with him, but they missed it again. And if you've been in most of the sermons as we've been going through Mark, you see that this is a consistent theme. They miss it often. They often miss what he's saying. They miss what he's teaching. They miss who he is. I don't fault them for that. I think it was a hard thing to understand. It was a hard thing to accept. They had this view about God and they couldn't They couldn't change it in their mind. I want us to look at four things here in the time that we have about what Jesus does. Things that Jesus does in this text that are important for his followers. Because the thing that Jesus provides for us in his word is information and instruction on how we are to live and how we are to understand Him as His followers. Go back, what I read in Exodus 33 and 34. Moses is pleading with God. How how do we know? How do we know? Jesus gives us those things here. In the way that he interacts with his followers. Beginning in verse 45. We see that Jesus directs his followers. Now if you've been in very many of our Mark sermons over the last several months. This has been point one of like five sermons. Now it's not because I'm just not creative enough to think about new words. Which is in part true. I just don't put a lot of effort into trying to make up new words. But this has been like point one of a bunch of the sermons. Why? Because it's important. Because constantly in Jesus' ministry, in His training of His disciples, He directs them. Look what it says there in verse 45. Immediately, He made His disciples get into the boat. Interesting there, the word made only appears here in the New Testament. He makes them get in the boat. Now, depending on how you understand this word, it may be really forcefully made them get in, or a little bit forcefully made them get in, but either way, he made them get into the boat and go across the sea. Sometimes, as a disciple of Christ, we need to be made to do things because we don't naturally want to do them on our own. We understand this if, we, if you have raised children. There are quite a few things that they simply do not want to do that is for their own benefit. They do want to play in places that are dangerous. You have to make them not do that. They don't want to eat certain foods that are good for them to eat. You have to make them to do that. They don't want to clean anything that they have messed up. You have to make them do that. Jesus here makes 
his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. He had a purpose in what he wanted to do. He wanted to dismiss the crowd. He wanted to have that closing moment with his audience, and he wanted his disciples to go ahead of him. So he makes them get in the boat and go. Friends, it's amazing to me the number of people who want to be Christ followers or at least want to say they are Christ followers but do not want to be directed by Jesus. They don't want to have nothing to do with His direction. They want to be fiercely independent. They want to withstand anyone trying to tell them what to do, anyone trying to give them instruction. And that includes Jesus. And how's that supposed to work? Think about the times in the Bible where the disciples of Christ did not follow His direction. They did not believe what He said. We see these interactions with Peter throughout. Jesus says in the Gospels, I'm going to die. Peter says, no. No, you're not. We're not going to let you. As if Peter, this leader of a small band of men against the Roman legions, could do anything. Jesus, I'll never deny you. And he does so three times. It is a disaster for the disciples of Christ when we do not follow his direction. We simply, it won't work. We can't do it. And and what is the purpose of it? What is the purpose of it? I give you a light-hearted example. As you are keenly aware, at my house from August till January, first weekend in February, we watch a lot of football. And by a lot, I mean hours every week of football. In person, on television, replays on the internet, we watch a lot of football. I caught one of my kids yesterday, supposed to be outside playing, snuck into the house to watch a six-month-old football game on DVR. We are committed to football. But what would it mean about our commitment level... If we were to decide, you know, we really like one particular team, we have their jerseys, we wear their jerseys, we watch them on television. As a matter of fact, the church before we moved in painted my son's room the colors of the Carolina Panthers. It was done. I don't know if it was approved in a business meeting, but it was done. It's, it's there. So what would it mean if we went and decided, you know, we're going to be fans of the Carolina Panthers, but we're going to go and buy jerseys for the Dallas Cowboys? It's a sin, isn't it? It's terrible. It's it's the biggest hypocrisy you could have. Almost as bad as if it was a Redskins or Falcons jersey. Now some of you are saying, But I'm a fan of that team, and I would only wear their jersey. Then you should understand what I'm saying. Why is it that we would say we follow Christ, 
But we, we like to go play for the other teams that are available. We'll listen to the things that the world says. We'll listen to the things that sin tells us to do. We'll embrace those things and celebrate those things. But over on the other side, this Jesus who we say we follow, we don't follow his directions. So I go to a Panthers game. I always sit in the nosebleed because tickets are very expensive not to sit in the nosebleed. So I go to the next Panthers game. I'm going to go cheer on the Panthers. But I wear my Cowboys jersey. That's not going to work. The people sitting next to me are not going to believe that I'm actually a Panthers fan. I'm wearing my Dallas Cowboys jersey. How is it that I could then say, well, no, I, I'm, I, honestly, I'm, I'm a fan of the Panthers. The only reason I started watching football, I, and we never watched in my family before Carolina had a team. Why would they believe me? Why would anyone think I was being honest? That is the Christian who says they follow Jesus but refuses to follow His direction. Why would anyone believe you? Why would anyone trust you? I love it when politicians from both political parties get on TV and they talk about their involvement in church and their love for Christ, but you look at their ideas and their personal life and you go, there's no way. They're saying that, but they're playing for the other team. They're refusing to follow Jesus' direction. And yet he directs his followers. So regardless of whether or not we want to follow his direction, guess what? He is directing us. He has given us clear instructions. Some of them he has given us very gently. Others sometimes he has to make us do. Because we fight it. Jesus directs his followers. Secondly here, Jesus watches over his followers. Look in verse 46. And after he had taken leave of them, talking about the crowd, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, and this would have been very late evening. Remember, it was later when he's feeding the crowds. Evening was coming at that point. So this is later in the evening. The boat was on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. Jesus is not there in the boat. He sent them on ahead and he goes up on this mountain and he is praying. And the Bible says that he looks out on the sea and he sees that they're struggling. He, he, he sees that they're fighting against the wind. That they're, they're barely making it across. They've been gone for some hours now and they've not made any headway. I think it's an amazing testimony that though he sent them on a way, he sent them out to do his directions, to follow his directions. He is on the side of the mountain watching over them. Taking care of them. I'm I'm reminded so often 
that we are not alone. Even when we're going through desperate circumstances, even when we're having to deal with things that we're very unsure about, that we're just uncomfortable with, we are not alone. Even when we are physically alone, we are not alone. Here is this wonderful picture of Jesus' relationship with his disciples. He is not there in the boat with them at this moment. He is watching over them. He is at a vantage point where he can see everything that is going on instead of just what is happening there in their small circumstances. He is able to oversee where they have been. He can oversee where they are going. He knows the presence present circumstances that they are in, and he is there on that mountain in prayer looking over his disciples. What a great comfort that should be for us. Yeah, we want, we want to have Jesus in the boat with us. We, we understand that uh, symbolism from, from a previous message that we looked at, but isn't it good to know that Jesus is also looking over us? Watching over you, aware of your circumstances, aware of where you have come from, aware of where you are going, even when you are not. Interestingly enough, if you look at the geography of this area on a map, you would see that Gennesaret, where they end up at, at the end, is out of the way. If you look at it, and you could see it on a map, what you would see is that they should have been going in a straight line, and what they do is the storm ends up blowing them off course, and when they finally end up, they end up at a place that they wouldn't have originally been heading. You say, why does that matter? Well, if they don't go through the storm, they don't end up at this place where, as we see there at the end, when they get out of the boat, people immediately recognize him. People are being saved. People are being healed. Jesus knew where they were going. He knew where they were going to end up. And so even though they're struggling, even though they're having to fight against the wind, they're having to fight against the storm, he knows where they're going to end up. He knows the direction they're going in because he's watching over them. Find comfort in that. Find comfort in the fact that Jesus knows exactly where we are going. And as he watches over us, sometimes the difficulties that we are dealing with, the hardships that we are going through, is because it is helping to direct us to the place that Jesus has for us to go. We can't see that. We don't understand it. But the comfort is in knowing that Jesus does. And that he's overseeing that for us. He directs his followers. He watches over his followers. And then look at the end of verse 48. Jesus draws near his followers. And about the fourth watch of the night. He came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. 
we have an interesting contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament here. In the Old Testament, God passes by. It wasn't a negative. We shouldn't understand that here as a negative. It wasn't as if he wanted to get on around them because they were taking too long because the wind was against them. And Jesus could walk on water and control the sea so he could move a little bit faster than their boat. In the Old Testament, God, to demonstrate his glory and to show his love for Moses, he passes by. And we, we get this sense that as God passed by, he, you need to understand God is bigger and greater than human characteristics. And Exodus is Moses' best attempt at describing them. So don't see God as the old man in the sky with the long beard. And don't you miss that. But, but as God walks by, he takes his hand and he... He puts it over Moses and puts him in the cleft of the rock. And then as he gets way on past him, he he removes his hand and Moses can see his back. And that's a powerful moment for Moses. A defining, a life-changing moment for Moses. So here, Mark tells us that Jesus is going to pass by them. They're going to get to have this same experience, but they're fearful and they cry out. And God, his purpose in sending Christ was to no longer pass by humankind, but was to draw near to them. It's a different experience with God incarnate. It's a different experience with Jesus Christ. No longer are we shielded from having that personal relationship with God where He has to hold us at an arm's length and we can only see His back because His face is too much for us. But because of His love for us, He sends His Son to dwell among us, to live among us. And here in Mark chapter 6, the Son of God draws near. He speaks to them. He's out in the storm. The wind is raging on. Or at least, sorry, no no storm in here, but the wind is howling against them and they cannot do anything. They're fighting this wind to move and they see this ghost-like character. And while he's still outside of the boat and they're fearful, he says, I am. Do not be afraid. And he draws near to them. This is probably harder for us to understand because we come from a Christian background and not a Jewish background. But the fact of the matter is, it is an amazing idea that God would draw near to his people. That he would draw near and come into their midst. Because God was such a far-off idea. The the Jewish people are are fearful of Him. Remember when they're at the foot of the mountain and the mountain is trembling and there's smoke everywhere and they've been threatened with death if they come on the mountain and they, they tell Moses, Moses, you talk to God. We can't. We're afraid. We, we are fearful that we are not good enough to have this relationship with God. Moses, you go and talk to God. 
How different it is with these men on this boat and the wind is, is whipping their boat in the wrong direction and they look out and they see this, this, this image that appears to them to be a ghost and instead of, of running away, instead of sticking out his hand to say, don't look at me, this, this figure in the water, which is Jesus, draws near to them in the boat. Friends, the religions of the world... If you look at the gods that they worship, they are gods who are far away. They are gods who are not personal. They are not gods that they have a relationship with, but they are gods that they follow the rules of. But Jesus, the only Son of God, drew near to us so that we could have a relationship with with him. In the Old Testament, we see God pass by. Not out of hatred or even distance, but because of his holiness. But in the Gospels, we see Christ draw near. And friends, we should rejoice that we have a Savior who not only looks over us, but has drawn near to us. He left his place in glory, and he came to the place that we are. He experienced the things that we do. He was tempted as we are. He went through sorrow as we go through sorrow, and therefore he is there and can sympathize with our needs. He can sympathize with our condition. Jesus laughed with his disciples and cried with his disciples. He, he hurt when they hurt. We, we see his emotion when his friend Lazarus is laying in the grave. We, we have this connection with Christ. Why? Because he has drawn near to us. And friends, that's amazing. Because we could not draw near to him. We, we think about our upcoming prayer conference and the, the key passage is, is from James about drawing near to God. How is that possible? How is it possible that we could draw near to God? It is because He first drew near to us. The people in the Old Testament could not experience God the way we can because God was at an arm's distance from them. But for Christ... He came. He dwelt among us. And when He stretched out His arms on the cross, it was to draw us near into Him. Jesus draws near His followers. And then fourthly, Jesus demonstrates His identity to His followers. He said, It is I, do not be afraid. He got into the boat with them. The wind ceased. They were utterly astounded. Verse 52 says, For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They cross over. They get out of the boat. And as happens so often, everyone begins to recognize Jesus. They come to Him. 
near and far, everyone around, everyone in the whole region, verse 55 says. They brought sick people on their beds. Wherever he came, in villages, cities, or the countryside, they laid the the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment. They had heard about this woman who had touched the hem, the fringe of his garment, and she had been healed, and so now they want to do the same. And as many touched it, verse 56 says, were made well. Jesus did everything he could. He, he, he showed them very clearly who he was. He demonstrates his identity to his followers. He says, I am. He heals these people who are sick. He had demonstrated it in the lows. He had demonstrated it as he cast out demons. He had demonstrated time and time and time and time again who he is. He makes it very clear. But they don't understand it yet. And I want to tell you that I think you and I would not have understood it either. At this point. Because until they experience the power of the resurrection of Christ, they do not understand who He is. They make some guesses. Peter will even go on to say, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. But even in that, he did not understand the implications until Christ had been resurrected because he denied Him three times. But friends, you and I live on this side of the resurrection. Some 2,000 years now removed from the resurrection of Christ. We have been given His Word. We have no excuse not to understand who He is. It baffles me the number of people that want to take the Word of God and try to remove everything supernatural from it. They want to say, well, he was actually walking along the seashore and because of some fog it looked like he was walking on the water. Do you know professional fishermen that ride the shoreline? So close that you can just step in their boat? Well, he was walking, the excuse is, on a sandbar, and and it simply looked like he was walking on the water. It is clear from the Scripture that the writer who wrote Mark, that Mark, when he wrote under the influence of the Holy Spirit, under under the ministry of Peter, who who guided Mark's life, we, we understand that he clearly believed when he wrote this that Jesus was walking on the water. Now, you can believe that Jesus did that, or believe that he didn't. That's fine. But when Mark penned these words, he had full faith that Jesus had walked on that water. And he had done so as a demonstration to his disciples of who he is. He was, as Peter would say later, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's why he could walk on the water. That's why he could take five loaves and two fish and feed the multitudes. 
That is why he could go from village to village, from city to city, and walk through the countryside, and those who would touch the, the hem, the fringe of his garment, would be healed. That's why he can stand at the outside of Lazarus' tomb and say, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who's wrapped in his burial garments after being dead four days comes out. That's why on the third day as we celebrated last Sunday, the stone was rolled away because Christ wanted it rolled away. Christ arose to demonstrate who he was. That death, hell, and the grave could not conquer him. But at his word, they had to bow down. Friends, we need to understand the advantage we have, the blessing that we have, that God no longer passes by, but now he draws near. Because he draws near, he gives us direction. And if we are going to follow him, if we're going to be Christians, then we need to embrace his direction. He watches over us. He, he sits at the right hand of the Father where the Bible describes Him as being now. He, he sits there and He is forever making intercession for us. He is forever pleading our case in front of the Father. He watches over us. In our good times, in our bad times, in our moments of joy and of desperation, He watches over us. And friends, he's shown us who he is. So what do you do with that? What do you do with, with this knowledge that, that Christ has, has shown us who he is? It has to affect and change how we live and who we are. We, we can't say that we follow Christ and then constantly want to dismiss his direction. Call it unimportant. Call it old-fashioned, call it outdated, or simply just reject it. It doesn't work that way. We have the power of the resurrection of Christ. We have the demonstration of His mighty deeds. Friends, it has to. It has to radically change our life. Radically change who we are. Radically change the direction we're going in. It has to mean something to us. It has to guide our life. We're not going to be perfect. We're not. We're going to mess up. We're going to sin. We're going to fall short. We're not going to live up to his expectations. But friends, that is not an excuse it's not an excuse to continue living in sin, continue following the wrong direction, continually uh, rejecting the commandments of Christ. Just because we're going to fall short doesn't mean that we do not seek with all that we are to follow Christ. With our whole heart, with our whole mind, with our whole body, seeking to follow after Him. Friends, the, the good news is that Christ has drawn near to us. 
And now we have the opportunity to draw near to Him. To follow Him. To serve Him. And my encouragement to you is that when we go from this place where we've gathered to worship Him and we sing praises about holding on to Him and Him holding on to us, praises about the day that He's going to return and and deliver us from this world that is full of wickedness and hate and darkness and, and lead us to His marvelous light and eternity in His presence. When we go from this place, We go knowing that He is watching over us. We go knowing who He is. We go knowing that He is drawn near to us. And we must go following His direction. Following His lead. Following His guidance. And giving Him glory for everything that He has done for us. Praising Him. When we're in the midst of of storms and difficulties, praising Him. When He has lifted us up to the highest places beyond what we could ever imagine. Praising Him in all that He has given us and serving Him with the fullness of our heart. Jesus cared for His disciples. That's why He sent them ahead. That's why He was praying for them on the mountain. That's why He left the mountain and went to the sea and walked with them. That's why I got in the boat. And he said, everything's going to be all right. I'm here. Do not be afraid. We you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you love us, care for us. That you guide our hearts, our minds. God, that you give us hope when we, we certainly struggle to have any. God, I would pray during this time that those who are gathered here would be encouraged that you have demonstrated to us over and over again your identity, your power, your place. You have identified to us, God, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so my hope, my prayer is that each person's heart would be encouraged. Encouraged to live a life that is pleasing to you. Encouraged to, God, seek your face daily. Seek your will for their life. Seek your purpose and plan for all that they are. God, encourage our hearts during this time of invitation. Help us to to grow. Help us to know you more. God, help us to seek your face. God, guide us. Guide our heart. Guide our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me as we're going to sing. My hope is that God's word this morning is an encouragement to you.
and encouragement of our need to follow Christ's direction. The encouragement because He's shown us who He is and, and all that He's done for us. But I realize that there may be some here who don't know Christ. He's, he's shown you who He is. He, he's shown you His love and compassion for His followers. We, we saw in Exodus where, where Moses wanted to be a, a, we want to be a distinct people, he says. We want to be different than everyone else in the world. And Christ has given us that ability to be, to be called to be different, to have hope in darkness when others do not. But if you don't know Christ, you don't have that hope. If you don't follow him, if you never trusted in him, that's not something you possess. But it could be because it's something he offers he offers us forgiveness. He offers us hope and love and life. He offers it freely. He only asks that we follow Him. So if you don't know Christ this morning, come and let me pray with you. Let me, let me tell you how to know Him. But if you know Christ, be encouraged. Be encouraged because He directs us and He loves us and He demonstrates that love in His death for us. Would you come and respond to God's word as we sing?